Welcome to Arcanex Sessions, episode 64. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. This week, we're joined by Gregory Walker, longtime Arcanactor, former AIA Georgia president, and partner at Hauser Walker Architecture in Atlanta. Gregory, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. So today we invited you on to discuss a very particular issue that is not at all specific to architects, but has a very specific architectural point to it. And I'm sure everyone is already familiar with this, but I'm going to take the time to explain the full title of it, just because I love how long it is. We're going to discuss North Carolina's HB2, known as the Public Facilities Privacy and Security Act, also known as, and more officially known as, an act to provide for single-sex, multiple-occupancy bathroom and changing facilities in school and public agencies, and to create statewide consistency in regulation of employment and public accommodations. So I just wanted to read that full title of the bill because, A, it gets at both of the two major elements of how this is problematic, and also just because it's hilarious, but it's more commonly known as North Carolina's <laughs> HB2. Basically what this law says, it was pushed through at the end of March in North Carolina. It says that transgender people must use whichever bathroom is labeled by their birth on their birth certificate. So they basically cannot choose based on their gender identity which bathroom to use. And secondly, it also forbids county and city legislatures from adopting any laws that would counteract these measures. So for instance, if your public school has accommodations for transgender kids in their bathrooms, they are no longer allowed to do that and must force those kids to use whichever gender bathroom corresponds with their the gender on their birth certificate. So we wanted to approach this issue from two architectural directions. One in the fact that the law is in inherent to the building code, right? It's telling you how you label your bathrooms and what kind of accommodations you have to provide. And that also, because this law has been very controversial and basically many, many people have decided and organizations have decided to divest from activities in North Carolina to protest the law. And one of such of those organizations is the AIA South Atlantic Region, who pulled out their convention from North Carolina and relocated it. So, Gregory, thanks again for coming on. Yes. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> is there any major information in there that I missed in introducing it that you want to kind of supplement? Well, you know what? I will, I will start by saying there's a third component to the law that, frankly, was one of the primary reasons we looked at this and said we might need to move the conference, which is that it prohibits uh, anyone who feels they have been discriminated against from seeking recourse in the state courts, which would effectively mean that the only way they could pursue a discrimination claim would be in the federal courts. So that actually gave us as much heartburn as any other aspect about the law itself. And it certainly is giving the the people in North Carolina as much heartburn as anything else. So when did the South Atlantic region first become aware of this as something that they would actually consider moving the convention for? So we were asked to take up as a as a group, and, and I'll um, maybe point out fairly quickly here, the, the South Atlantic region is uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. And the, the council that, that sort of oversees uh, the region is made up of the current president, the president-elect, and the past president from all three states, plus our two regional representatives. So we were approached by North Carolina, both Georgia and South Carolina, and asked to reconsider whether we wanted to hold the convention in Wilmington, uh, probably if, you know, probably a month after the bill had passed. We started talking about that idea. At that point, you know, a couple of the more high-profile actions that happened, Salesforce had already announced that they weren't going to build some center there. Billy Joel, I believe, or some, uh, you know, one of the musicians, Bruce Springsteen, sorry, 
Um, had already, <laughs> I think you don't offend Billy Joel. A little difference. bit of difference. A little bit of difference. <laughs> We've got a New Jersey guy on the <laughs> podcast here. You can't yeah, mix I'm up sorry. This. I'm sorry. So Bruce Springsteen uh, had already pulled out. And so we we looked at it and we said, you know, what, what should our response be here? And um, we began a series of negotiations and discussions about wh- what's the best way we can respond to the law. Interestingly, the lieutenant governor in North Carolina is an AIA member. Um, <laughs> Interesting. They, the North Carolina delegation took our thoughts to him, and it was made clear that it would not be seen as a favorable action if we left the state. And so it really evolved over a couple of weeks of discussion, a, a lot of discussion about what should we do. And a lot of the things that we weighed are, you know, how, you know, how damaging is the law to the citizens of North Carolina? And, you know, we covered a lot of uh, ground on uh, issues such as, you know, well, why haven't we done this before? You know, maybe to kind of wade into the deep end. As in, why haven't there been issues where the whole crowd has galvanized to respond that way? Well, the yeah, the first the first comment that came up was from somebody from the South Carolina delegation, which was a group, which was, uh, you know, we've had a Confederate flag flying over our capital for 50, mm-hmm. 60 years. We didn't pull out of the convention, you know, to protest that three years ago or four years ago or six years ago, or whenever the last conference was there. So, you know, why didn't we do it then? And would we do it now, now that there's more scrutiny on the flag flying? So, you know, in the end, we all sort of agreed that you got to take a stand somewhere and you got to start somewhere. And we had a very robust discussion about whether moving the conference was the correct course of action. And it was not a unanimous vote, but it was a vote that we all rallied around after it was made. So... Can you say what the uh, breakdown of that vote was, just out of curiosity? Like, what was the uh, approximate like? I, I mean, it, it, it was a fair, it was a very high percentage saying yes, without without maybe saying the exact numbers, but it it was a very high percentage. And I think the the people that had reservations, what I should make clear is, nobody in our group felt like by the by the end of the discussions, nobody felt like this was a good law or that you know that that if we were staying, we would somehow either be tacitly endorsing it. The discussion really centered on around what is the best response. And for us as a group, you know, the the first thing we started to look at was, well, who are we really affecting if we leave? I mean, this is in Wilmington, North Carolina. You know, the people that are going to be the most damaged are going to be the local hotels we're pulling out of, the local convention center that we're pulling out of, the local restaurants that nobody's going to go to during that week. And it's not going to be the legislators in North Carolina. You know, that by the time we started deliberating, Charlotte had already said they had nine conventions that had either formally canceled or had indicated they were going to cancel because of the law. They had another 20-something that were they, they their Chamber of Commerce was saying was on the fence about leaving Charlotte. So, I mean, you already had 30-some-odd conferences just in Charlotte that, that may have pulled out, or conventions that may have pulled out as a result of this law. And so, one of our questions was, you know, or what kind of a statement are we making? Is this too much of a me too statement? You know, is it too easy simply to say we're going to pull out, you know, in protest of the law? And frankly, you know, part of that discussion came back to Georgia and South Carolina had similar, though not quite nearly as egregious laws, but we had a, a religious freedom law here in Georgia and so did South Carolina that 
But for the stroke of a governor's pen, we would have been in the same place. So the, the, the question for us is, you know, how much of a moral high ground did we really have at Georgia and South Carolina over North Carolina, other than the fact that our governor hadn't signed this? So, you know, there, it was a more complex uh, set of questions for us in terms of what is the best way to unilaterally say, we do not support this law. We don't support it relative to recognizing that um, there are many members in the LGBT community that are, are architects and AIA members, and we need to support them. And, and just on the, the principle of this law seems not to be in the best of the public interest. So a lot of that went into the decision making. And in the end, that's probably why we didn't have a unanimous vote, was just simply not to say that the law was appropriate, but would, that this may not have been the best course of action. So was there a particular argument on the opposite side that was just arguing for, let's just keep the course, that wasn't at all necessarily, um, it was that might have been sympathetic to these ideas, but still kind of was a little bit more, this is not the time nor the place. Was there um, a prevalence of that argument? So there were definitely some voices, maybe not so much in our specific deliberations, but certainly we heard from members as we were sounding out individual members. There was definitely some concern that we should not be wading into the midst of what they saw as a social issue and should just stick to professional issues. And I think we appreciated where that sentiment was coming from. And I I don't think that was a direct reflection of somebody being in favor of the law. I think it was simply them saying, we're a professional association. What does this really have to do with us? Or or seeing it through that lens. So we Mm. were certainly cognizant of it. We definitely had a lot of discussions of, you know, what the the feedback may be that we were going to get from members. You know, for about a week, we got a lot of feedback at all three chapters. Uh, it was probably running 70-30 in favor of moving the conference. But, you know, the, the membership, like any membership in any large professional organization, isn't monolithic. And I think to the group's credit that, that had to make this decision, we were not oblivious to that, you know. And we, even though I think most of us personally may have swung towards one particular side of this issue politically, we we wanted to be cognizant that it it is, you know, it's not a monolithic group. So, but I do think in the end, we made the right decision. I mean, I I should say that for the record. Uh, Unequivocally, I think we made the right decision. So Gregory, when we talked a couple months ago to the the former dean at, um, was it UT Austin, who had left to go to Pennsylvania because he, um, in part because he was not happy with the the decision about open carry Mm -hmm. on campus, the gun law, right? I had asked him, and I didn't really feel like I got a, a clear answer, so maybe I didn't ask the question properly, but I had asked him how he felt about the notion of architects taking on social stances, let's say. I think that a lot of people are shocked to hear that architects would take on or, or proclaim a social stance. You know, I think there's, a, there's definitely some people who view our profession as very status quo and very much not wanting to rock the boat because we just want to get the jobs, right? We just mm-hmm. want to get the commissions. Sure. And, you know, I, on the other hand, feel like that my in my life as an architect, I live the life I am as a human, as an architect. And so as a person who tends to be somewhat activist, I bring that also to the architecture work I do. Sure. Could you talk a little about as a leader of an organization, because I'm now president of a local chapter as mm-hmm. well, um, uh, as a leader in an AIA organization, how do you feel like our profession is moving in that 
in that term? Are we becoming as a profession more of an activist profession or is it just part of a general move in the society? What are, what are your feelings on that? You've been involved with the AIA for how many years now? Oh, I I mean, I was the, the uh, you know, a student officer way back when and then and then took a little hiatus. But um, I mean, pretty active in Atlanta for 15 years. So yeah, in various forms. Yeah. And so ha- has that changed over the, the time, over the 15 years? You know, what, what are your personal views so, on that? So, you know, to, to me, there's really kind of two parts to that question. And I think, I think the first part of that question is, is the organization as a whole sort of waking up and saying, hey, there are issues related to just the human condition, as, as I think you said a second ago, that, that are so general and fundamental to the quality of life we live as human beings that we have no choice but to speak out. And for us, certainly within these three states, this fell into that category. The converse to that might be simply saying, we didn't go looking for this particular fight, meaning I I think on a certain level, all of us probably would have wished that the law hadn't been passed and we hadn't (laughs) been forced into this decision. Right, right. But I do think as a whole, AIA has certainly stepped up a little bit more in the, the past five years to, to take on more of an activist role, especially for, especially for issues like this, where it, it, it is fundamentally going to affect the quality of our members' lives who are LGBT in North Carolina. And so this this sort of crosses that boundary, you know, whereas maybe a campus carry law, which I, as an educator, thankfully, we we vetoed here in Georgia, but it literally came down to four o'clock on the last day, passing our own, um, which got vetoed as well. That might be a tougher one for us to get involved with because it, it, it as the educator side, sure, but as the AIA side, it may have been potentially more difficult to engage that issue. The backside of that, I think, though, Donna, is is I think it takes people like you and I who maybe have a little bit more of that muckraker mentality that, that are, are, right. are going to step up into the leadership positions. And I think certainly our generation and the generation kind of coming behind us may not be quite as afraid of taking the risks as a business owner, stepping up and speaking our minds, or as AIA leaders stepping up and speaking our minds. Whereas I think, you know, maybe the generations in front of us were had that mentality of we're, we're just a professional organization. We need to be narrowly focused only on X, Y, Z kinds of issues. So I do think it will get more socially active for all those reasons. And I'm glad Greg said that because that's one of the th- things I was going to point out is that, you know, we can't expect to grow the membership if we don't take a position on things that are this difficult. Exactly. I mean, who cares if it's a social issue? It's it's an issue of our time. And it's certainly an issue that uh, the younger generation is definitely thinking about. And we can't expect to be a big tent organization if we constantly capitulate to the the older generation who is typically more conservative, typically less activist, and typically w- their heads up their ass on a lot of issues. So, <laughs> and, you know, I know Donna and, and Greg are great at mucking the rake and, and I'm just good at burning <laughs> down the building. So, I mean, I'm not the one who's going to be because I, I really not. I mean, I just emailed my president to see if they had had any needs for delegates to the convention because I plan, you know, at this time I plan on sticking around as long as they don't screw it up like last year and I have to go to the... That was my fault. Was it was my fault. But, you know, I, I so I think it's important that we, you know, we, we set an example 
for um, younger members who are constantly saying to us, why join? And we could say, well, this is a reason why you join, because you can help affect, be a part of that thing that we need to have happen, which is making the changes. And Greg, you know, I think AIA has some cover. I mean, it seems like a lot of what is happening right now, and it's interesting to see that you've got a Republican governor who typically would kowtow to business interests, and you have business after business, organization after organization saying, this is the wrong thing to do. And so you've got some cover in this area to be able to make, you know, to be able to take the stance. And I, I don't, think that there's a there's a whole lot of um uh, at least I can't see see a problem where there would be an issue for the AIA there um to have to deal with. You know, I think I think the backside of this discussion is especially with regards to a kind of a professional association like this is what what battles can be fought at the state or local level versus what can, you know what what do we expect the national organization to mm-hmm. do you know we we had the unofficial backing of national to pursue moving the conference meaning we had those discussions and and they were certainly supportive of our reasons to want to move it and and why we were discussing it but i don't know that the national would have taken the lead on this and uh in coming out and saying we're calling on the south atlantic you know group to move their conference and I, to AIA's credit, I think that's probably the right move. I think if it came from the top, if that particular discussion came from the top down in this instance, and it had been a mandate from National, you will move it. Frankly, it, it certainly in this region, and I'm I'm a little more of a blue guy in a red region, that would not have played well. And it, and it, and it could have backfired spectacularly if it did not look like it was coming, you know, if it, if it were coming from National or, or had that impetus. So the fact that we were taking it on ourselves and it was even being initiated by the people from North Carolina, I, I think made it a little bit easier to say with conviction, you know, this is this is how this group feels. And interestingly, one of the, the discussions we had about, you know, would we lose members over this particular decision? And that was a very real discussion for a while. Today, we don't by the last time I heard, we have not had anybody actually cancel their membership, not in Georgia, I know, over this. We had a few people threaten and then in the end back off of that and and say, well, I'm not happy with this particular decision, but I'm not going to walk away from my membership after all. Gregory, what was the feeling like at your firm around this issue? So at our firm, um, and we did do the we did do the informal polling as this was sort of going through, it was fairly unanimous that that we should that, that AIA should look at moving it. And was that part of the kind of the deliberations that helped you kind of come to the final decision here, or like at least for the statement that AIA Georgia issued? Was there like personal conversation just in the context of your own professional work, aside from being an AIA representative that kind of helped sure. inform the actual, you know, kind of wording and how you would then actually relate to other members? Well, I think I think the personal conversations uh, for myself, I mean, I may not be able to speak for some of the other people on the group, but for myself, I mean, just the conversations in general, and and not just with my office, but with other colleagues who were in both traditional practice or who, you know, maybe our clients, you know, at um, uh, our local university, you know, system, but who are architects. But, you know, talking, talking to different architects and getting their feedbacks absolutely helped. And I I know it helped for a few, a few other people in how they made that decision. And I think, 
to the benefit of the group, even those people that I just mentioned, those 11 people that, you know, were making the decision, politically, we're not monolithic. Uh, there were definitely a few red members of that group. And to me, I think it was encouraging for them to see, uh, even though it may not go their way, you know, even though politically, maybe they are finding some some uh, affiliation with what the law's intent is. Even they saw there was a, agreed there was a real need to look at this in, in the terms of what's the best for AIA. And at the end of the day, I think that is how everybody voted. Gregory, quick question for you. You know, do you see anything happening in the building? I mean, could you foresee anything happening in the building? Because you think states will start to, or even just IBC will start to take notice of uh, of this as an issue and start to, and do you see anything happening in the code-wise? Uh, that's a great question. And coincidentally, we got a notice today, uh, there's a an author who has written an entire history on the gender specific uh, specificity of bathrooms and how that came into being. I was and, wondering about that. <laughs> uh, so he was he was interviewed. Yeah, so he was interviewed for an NPR program recently about how all this came into being. And then you know the suggestion was, could he be one of the keynotes at our conference <laughs> um, to to potentially help explain how all this even came into being in the first place? I, that's really hard to say. I'm not sure we would know where to go with that until there was a real opportunity to sit down and and start to say, how does this work? I mean, without getting into the arcana of the code, I mean, there are certainly ways to do gender-neutral bathrooms as part of your count that you have to satisfy for the code. And to make, uh, you could probably make, frankly, fairly large percentages of your counts gender-neutral the reason we tend to split it, I think, is because it's a cost savings thing. It's just more square footage to to do mm-hmm. more gender, you know, single individual gender neutral bathrooms as opposed to group bathrooms by sex. But yeah, we'll see. I don't know. I, I, that's a good question. You know, I think I think I bring it up because it seems like, in, for instance, in Texas, they use specifically the, the definitions around corridors in, in the code about how to define what is required in a Planned Parenthood facility. Mm-hmm. So they use, you know, gurney sizes and what is typically required in a hospital to then apply that part of the code. And I always wonder, you know, is there, can we think ourselves into a, into a pretzel or do we need to be a little bit more thoughtful about how this can be politically manipulated and then applied in a way that isn't, I mean, we're generally not thinking that way, but it seems like Texas has shown me that when I look at a code, I can't just look at it as though it was, you know, it's very prescriptive. I have to look, think about it. You know, what is the political implications of this potentially? Yeah. So, you know, I'll, I'll speak for myself for a second and, 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 and not as um, an AIA representative. I think the absurdity of the North Carolina law to me is I, I have zero idea of how you enforce it other than if a creepy person who looks like they're the opposite sex wanders into a bathroom and uh, somebody gets scared and they start screaming, you know, help, help or something. How are you going to enforce this? I mean, I, you know, and, and that to me just, again, personally sort of highlighted the absurdity of the law that this really isn't about bathrooms. The bathrooms are the excuse to say, we just want to openly discriminate against an entire group of people. 
And we're going to pull out the boogie monster threat to try to make that happen. And so I, you know, on a personal level, this was a fairly easy decision to look at and say, this law is just absurd. And to to recognize the absurdity of it, you know, that's different than going back and saying, okay, I have to put on my hat as a steward and, and frankly, as a fiduciary steward of AIA and what's in the best interest of the organization in that capacity. But yeah, from a personal level, I, the moment it came out, I it, it was so difficult to understand why anybody thinks that this would ever hold up in a court of law somehow. But that's just my personal take. And Donna, you mentioned, we were discussing this before we were actually recording the podcast, but how one of the major factors to this whole thing is just how much of it is built up so that North Carolina can say any type of smaller level, whether it be city or countywide legislator to counteract it, is just going to be snuffed. That way they won't allow that. So Ken, in regards to what you're saying of just like critical reading of the actual code, that this is, again, like a critical reading of the code as being kind of like an example being put forward for the North Carolina legislator to do this to other smaller constituencies in the state and how that the dangerous precedent that might set if you then have to go to the federal government to <laughs> protest the fact that you were assaulted for being in a bathroom or something like that. Right. But this is definitely something that, I mean, as we were recording this, things on this topic are changing. There was, uh, <laughs> like, we are certainly not the only ones talking about it. It's a very major kind of a scandalous thing that is going on and now involves the federal government. So we'll include in the show notes a little bit of a basic explainer for what is all going on and hopefully some most some of the more up-to-date content for those of you to familiarize yourself with what is going on with the law. But at this point in the podcast, we want to move on to our next point in the conversation and particularly one that also involves Gregory. Gregory, you're our like double feature for this episode. Nice. Okay. <laughs> so this has to do with Resolution 16-2 being brought to AIA National next week for the delegates to vote on. Why don't you give us a quick explainer for what that resolution entails? Sure. So the resolution itself is addressing what is a, a current policy in, in technical terms, but it's a, an acknowledgement that anybody applying for a national award or honor through AIA, so the AIA Gold Medal or Firm of the Year or the Educator of the Year Award, the Topaz Medal, or any of the design awards at the national level. You fill out, as part of the application process, a little disclaimer that says, I do not use unpaid interns as part of my practice or any practice that I have an ownership stake in. And we've looked out over the past few years and seen some people who who have been recognized at the national level with individual awards who some more openly than others have have talked about how they've had unpaid interns as part of their practice and started to wonder where was the disconnect? You know, how were some of these people being recognized without, you know, how, how are they able to sign this statement with a straight face based on what they've said in other venues or based on what people knew to be true? And so it causes us to go back and take a look very closely at the language of the policy and to look at its history and see how it came about. It was originated through the, the AIAS, which is the student organization, about 20 years ago. And it was initiated as a policy on who they would invite to speak at their events. And basically the policy there said, you know, if you had any anybody who was an unpaid intern at your office, we will not, and you know, you you are barred from 
speaking at or, or having any role in, in sort of an AIA-S event. When they passed it, they forwarded it over to AIA and said, hey, we would love for you guys to take it up for yourselves. And over the period of a couple of years, it was deliberated and ultimately implemented. And it's had a few revisions over that time, but, but largely it's the same statement. The reason for looking at updating it now was really to kind of recognize a couple issues. One is if you looked at it at face value, one could say, oh, well, if I don't have an unpaid intern in my office on the day that I am signing this, I am in compliance because the, the, the entire resolution as it's written right now or the entire, sorry, the entire policy as it's written right now is literally in the present tense. It says, I do not actively have any unpaid interns. So you could have somebody who built an entire career around unpaid interns, throw them out the door that day that you're signing it, and they could sign it with a straight face and be, be in technical compliance with the policy. So we didn't think that was right. We thought that that, that needed to be updated. So what we did is we went back and, and, and started to try to rewrite and put some teeth into the resolution. So now what it basically does is it, it, it removes the idea that it's solely attached to interns, in part because we're sort of phasing out the, uh, the use of intern, both with NCARB and AIA, which may be a whole other discussion um, we can talk about. But the, the term is, is slowly being phased out. And we really recognize, too, it's, it's unpaid labor at any position. It's not just somebody who's an intern. So the new policy rewrite would essentially say that you are not employing or otherwise engaging labor that's unpaid, including working students. And neither does any firm in which the, the candidate or applicant is an owner or manager of imparter in whole. Uh, this candidate acknowledges the wording shall cover all persons working under the employer regardless of their position or title. Exceptions recognized by federal law, such as legally defined internships or educational cooperative programs, are exempt. The candidate also acknowledges that they have not used any unpaid labor as defined above for a minimum of five years prior to the application deadline for all institute honor awards and a minimum of 10 years prior to the application deadline for all other institute honors, including the honors program, membership, honor awards, and collaborative and achievement awards. The candidate personally acknowledges adherence to the terms of this policy. So the gist there was to say there, there has to be a, a period of time to which this is attached to. So again, that you're not having somebody roll up to the day of and say, hey, I'm not in compliance today or I'm in compliance today. And it was to put a higher bar for the individual achievements as opposed to the, the design awards themselves. And then the last part of that was to get them to say, hey, and look, if you're, if you're in compliance with federal law, you should have no problem signing this, right? And if you know the federal labor law, you should have no problem signing this. But it was also to get people to say, I am personally aware of this as opposed to, well, maybe my administrative assistant filled out this application and has no idea, right, whether we, we are employing people or not. So they just check, of course, we're in compliance. So it was to get, it, it was to try to put a little more teeth into the personal accountability side. And so just as we were interested in the HB2 enforcement issue, how would something like this be enforced? And would there be kind of a back check on firms who do have a stated or explicit use of unpaid interns in the within that five to 10 window? Sure. So we, we took the step, at least for this year, to say it would fall to the board of directors as to how this would be enforced. There are, again, without maybe kind of going into the, 
to the weeds for the listeners who are not AIA members, there are provisions within the AIA's code of ethics which deal with unpaid labor already. And so if somebody brings a claim against somebody uh, against a firm, there is a mechanism already to deal with how to research that and to enforce it. So for a majority of the claims, you could bring them through that particular policy. But we thought we'd, for this particular year, uh, focus on just trying to get the language updated and to, to frankly probably have a little bit deeper conversation with some of the other chapters about how the enforcement might work. And then if we need to come back next year um, and take that up, we will. We do have some allies within the the, uh, the overall leadership of AIA who are, are simultaneously helping us flesh out what an enforcement mechanism may like. And that that just may be applied administratively as opposed to having to include it in the policy. You know, look, personally, again, maybe not speaking on behalf of AIA Georgia for, for two minutes, I would love to see anybody for whom you could prove the claim, and I do believe in due process, but if you can prove a claim against somebody who's been awarded, for example, the gold medal, I got no problem stripping that gold medal off their neck and asking for it back. (laughs) Retributive, yeah. (laughs) I have no problem whatsoever saying, you know, you're going to vacate this honor award. You know, because again, we're not asking anything in this resolution more than being in compliance with federal labor law. And if nothing else... It forces a firm to actually look at the law, then I think we'll have gotten half of our mission accomplished. But you know, overall, we were not we were not trying to make the resolution uh, or, or the policy itself inherently be punitive, but really to call attention to what the the original intent of this was, and it and certainly was not to to say a lifetime of sins can be washed away in an instant as you're signing this. Uh, because you happen to be in compliance that day, it, it's trying to set a higher bar and say, "Look, I mean, you can't you can't have built up a whole career as a gold medal winner on the back of unpaid interns and expect the institute to reward that." Mm-hmm. Bravo! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what about getting support or gauging interest on this resolution from other AIA chapters? Yeah, so we've been very fortunate so far, I think, in the sense of uh, it's been almost universally positive in terms of support. So we have a web page, uh, we have a page up at our website on aagorgia.org or aiaga.org that is tracking all the individual chapters that have um, uh, pledged their support. So right now that includes states such as Tennessee, South Carolina, North Carolina, the larger cities, a Los Angeles, a New York. AIDC, the Boston Society of Architects, I think, is pretty much on board. They had a couple questions just clarifying how it related to academia. We expect they'll be there. So we've been pleasantly surprised in how widely, how wide the, the, the positive support has been. We've really heard no nobody who sounds like they they would challenge it at the convention. I can say from my own experience that at our recent state of Indiana board meeting, when I was actually the one who presented and described it to all of our my my fellows fellow members at the table, and um, the, it was an immediate nodding of heads that yeah, this is a great yeah. idea. Yes, of course we should do this. So I don't know that Indiana has officially signed yeah. on yet, but I, I I do believe that we are on board. And I just want to say that I understand change happens slowly, and I think that if nothing else, again, this gets the conversation out there that we expect people to do the right thing, to pay their 
workers and follow federal law. And um, we as a as a discipline can change on this issue and get, you know, get rid of the tradition that was not good for anyone except a few principles. Yeah. So, the, I, you know, I, I will say that the, the questions, you know, uh, that I expected to hear that we just never did was I was expecting to hear questions from some of the, the members. Well, you know, we just went through like a crazy recession back in 08. 09, um, 010, you know, if I had a, a three-week period where literally all my clients had stopped paying and I couldn't pay the staff that, you know, I couldn't make payroll, does that mean I'm out? You know, does that mean I'm ineligible? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I was expecting some tough questions like that. How would you answer that question, though? Would that be a matter of whether the individual was was on the payroll at any given point and then was given the same treatment as everyone else because simply there was no money. Yeah. So, you know, my, I think our answer was um, we're on the honor system and we are expecting that that is such a unique circumstance that if it were somebody were to come forward and say, Hey, you know, he didn't pay me this payroll, you know, back in 2009, that there would be some leniency there, which Mm -hmm. is because to me, that's, that's radically different than saying, you know, I'm advertising for for three month free internships, right? Mm-hmm. Or I'm, right. I'm putting out ads, <laughs> and I'm I'm literally building my entire business model around this. You know, I, we all had a, you know some ridiculously difficult moments back then, and I, and I I think we're you know our, our our goal would be to say, look, use your use your best judgment. You know, if it happened, and then you had to fold the firm up right afterwards, or if you did it. And then you're able to make restitution later. I, the goal, again, isn't to beat somebody up and say, no, 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 you missed that one. So you know you're ineligible. It's really to call out people for whom this is a bit more of a, a, an actual business model than it is a, a one-time occurrence. So, yeah, so those are the sorts of questions I think we expected. I mean, I honestly, I expected more of a question as well of, of when you have a situation like MoMA PS1, the annual competition um, where they go look for the young architects and and select one and and then they have three months and almost no money to go build and so all of those are practices that they're recognizing and they are all of those projects rely on volunteer labor to help make it happen so that's a really gray zone that again I was I was expecting somebody to, to ask the question about but it's that's a really that's a tough call because you don't want to say again that that this is something where there's a one-time event or if a firm was rallying the troops around a pro bono project would that apply if they weren't compensating their time, you know employees for that time and again you we're all adults and we're all trying to use our best judgment on these situations. To me, that that's a really hard case because if it's very clear it's a volunteer solicitation for a specific event, you kind of know what you're getting into. But then there's a there's a backside question that says, well, if it's a, a young firm and the and it's a teacher at a school and and he's asking for quote unquote volunteers from his class to help him with a competition over the summer, how is that any different? Hmm. And, you know, nobody went there. Nobody went to any of those sorts of questions. They were much more about work study and, you know, how does that work? Hmm. 
maybe it'll come to that point when you're actually at AIA and then everyone will just bog down the entire thing. <laughs> if we can just hold this podcast oh, out until after we're done <laughs> with the, the business session on Saturday, it'll work. Podcast filibustering. Yeah. <laughs> I certainly think, you know, and, and that's, but to come back around to your question, Amelia, I mean, I think that's part of the reason we didn't want to specify the enforcement on this first run. It was because there are going to be some gray zones and it, it may take a little bit of time to flesh those out and to say, what is the proper what is the proper response for an incident like that? I mean, clearly none of us would say if you volunteered your time for Habitat for Humanity, that Habitat for Humanity could never apply for an award. I mean, that's just the base. That's that's the right. rule, right? right. It's, it's, it's a nonprofit and you do it. It gets a little trickier when you have an architectural that may be a nonprofit or a community design center submitting for an award. And, and those are all... I, I think gray zones where you want ultimately maybe to have a, a review panel that would, you know, review a potential claim and say, hey, this doesn't look right mm-hmm. or, hey, this looks OK. Well, we're certainly looking forward to seeing this all come out at AIA next week. The vote is on the 21st. Is that correct? It is on that Saturday, whatever that Saturday is. Yeah. Great. Please let us know as soon as you uh, get word. We will. We will. Ken will be right there with me, so you know he can he can he can rock, he can live tweet that thing. Yeah, exactly. He should come in as uh, Jujutsu Gi. That's right. <laughs> I I have to say I unfortunately will not be there voting because I am a section president. But Indiana just this year went to one AIA Indiana, which means only really? our state president goes. Yes, so our state president casts our entire block of votes. So for the first time, the local chapter, we no longer have chapters, we have sections. Mm-hmm. And for the first time, the local sections will not be voting. So we had a meeting, we all spoke our piece about who and what we thought about all of the issues. And then the um, state president will uh, take us under advisement and vote for all of us. So well, I may go anyway, though, even though I won't be able to cast a vote. I want to come down on the 9-11 truthers. <laughs> yeah, that will be interesting for for. For reference, there was a, a, a group last year that um, petitioned AIA through the business session to grant them some obscene amount of money to have the AIA go off and investigate why World Trade Center 7, was it 7, that collapsed. And, and the premise was it was, it was not through <laughs> natural causes, so to speak. Right. Um, the, oh. There was something more nefarious oh. there. So an hour of discussion later, um, somebody finally figured out the parliamentarian trick to shut the discussion down and um, actually call a vote. Well, they're back. They're back. They keep popping up. Back. Like is it? It's so, so great to know that the AIA is just as complex and convoluted as any other it form is. of government process. It so is. it's it excellent. Is. It's excellent to hear that. That means things are that due process is happening. But Gregory, thank you so much for joining us thank on the you. podcast. This was so great. We're always happy to talk about these things and glad that you could kind of serve as a little bit of both a, you know, a spokesperson, but also a personal voice for these issues. So thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. Anytime. And to everyone else out there listening, thank you. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag ArcConnect Sessions. And you can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. And please consider rating the podcast if you enjoy it. Uh, We would love to get your feedback. Amelia, do we know who's on the next one-to-one episode coming up on Monday? We sure do. In fact, this will be something of a special 
one-to-one and that it is more of a one-to-two. I have two representatives from NBBJ uh, and their new sector focusing on virtual reality um, that they're developing within the company to use, particularly for architects in designing and communicating with clients. So super excited to talk to those guys. I believe they're ex-Microsofters and uh, that episode will air on Monday. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week. Bye guys. Thanks. Great talking to you all.